0: It was incredibly rewarding and incredibly eye-opening. And I just learned so much. Like the learning curve was incredibly steep, but again, I think it came back to the support and mentorship that I received. So there were high expectations, but along with those high expectations, there was a lot of support and a lot of teaching that supported me to meet those high expectations.
1: Welcome to the Council Podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I'm passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today isn't afraid of taking risks. Her career is a testament to this. Jumping in-house with only one year of experience is one thing, but leaving legal practice altogether to co-found a legal tech startup is another. Kate McAllister is a trademark expert and co-founder of Markster. Markster delivers dynamic trademark services to modern in-house legal teams. Prior to founding Markster, Kate found herself burnt out and ready to throw in the towel on the law altogether. Her experience is one that sadly I hear all too often. I'm so grateful to Kate for honestly sharing about this time in her life. I have no doubt that her story will resonate with you too. If you are struggling with the demands of legal practice or just life in general at this time, please know that you are not alone. So many of us, including myself, have experienced tough times in the law. Your employer should have an employee assistance program in place and I would encourage you to use it. They say that it's always darkest before the dawn and listening to Kate's story proves that to be true. She seems to me to have truly found her place in the industry and is a shining example for anyone who needs a little hope right now. Enjoy this episode with Kate McAllister. Kate McAllister. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mel. It's a pleasure to be here. It is so, so great. This is a long time coming, this one, and I'm thrilled that we could make it happen. We had to move things around Saturday, Sunday. You had some renos going on. I had some family visiting. <laughs> Life was getting in the way, but we made it happen, and, and I'm yeah. so thrilled to have you here because we go way back a little bit. We, we've got a little bit of a I don't know, a bit of a story, a bit of a journey. Do you want to tell the listeners how we met? Yeah,
0: yeah, I'd love to. So, I was working in-house at Megaport. (laughs) Ta-da! That's the punchline. (laughs) The one and only Megaport. And the lovely Mel Scott had recently joined our team. And so, I was actually transitioning out and had decided to go back into private practice at that time. So, We only really had a few weeks where we overlapped, but Mm -hmm. it was great. And I think we've just kept in contact ever since.
1: We have, I know. And I wasn't your replacement, was I? No, I think the team was expanding.
0: So you were hired in addition, and you know what it's like at Megaport. It just grows so rapidly that they had need for another legal person. So,
1: yeah. That was me. And then I suppose you handed over more than... (laughs) more than you thought you might be but it worked out well and then I took the reins and I was the new Kate as they called me and that was some big shoes to fill my friend (laughs) I never (laughs) told you that but everyone really liked Kate so I had to bring my game (laughs) but I'd like to think I did but yeah it was such an interesting time because you were going back to big law and we'll get there, but I'm really interested in why. Why would she do such a thing? Yeah,
0: yeah. So a lot of people asked me that question, actually. I, I so bet.
1: before <laughs> yeah. we get to it, Kate, I want to give my listeners a little sense of who you are. And I always do that with my opening question. If you did have a limitless credit card, but you could only spend it at one shop, you didn't have to pay it back. I always add that in now, got my caveat. What shop would that be and why? <laughs>
0: I love this. I love this question. It just, how much time have we got, really? (laughs) (laughs) Joe Rogan style,
1: three hours. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a three hour podcast. Yeah, no, I think you touched on it before. So my partner and I just recently bought a house and we're doing some pretty hectic renos. So I'd probably use the opportunity to go to Bunnings to be perfectly honest.
1: Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I should pretty much have shares in Bunnings at this point. I'm down there every other day buying things, buying paint, buying tools, (laughs) getting on the power tools. It's my new
1: obsession. Oh, good on you. That's such an adult answer, but I relate. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. And I love that you're doing that project together, gets you out of the workspace and your day-to-day job as well and gives you something else to focus on, I'm sure.
0: Oh, it's been brilliant. It's really just opportunity to really use your creative side and learn a whole new bunch of things that you otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to learn. So creating something yourself and DIYing it is incredibly rewarding when you come to the end of it and it kind of looks okay. It's better than, you know, (laughs) what you expected it to look like. So it's incredibly rewarding. I think it's something we'll continue to do.
1: Oh, I love that. I think there's two types of people in this world. I think there's ones that like to renovate a home and there's ones that could not think of anything worse. (laughs) I suspect I'm in the second camp, but you will be my cheerleader in the first. Oh, I love that, Kate. Thank you for giving us a little glimpse into where you're at, but let's take you back a little bit to where you've been and where you've come from. Tell me what your first legal job was and then how you found your way to in-house practice.
0: Yeah, so... I started out my legal career as a grad in a mid-tier law firm in Australia, and I ended up settling in the insurance litigation. So someone who's experienced a grad program yourself, you kind of get your pick of your rotations, but demand really dictates where you're going to be placed. So I settled in insurance litigation, pretty quickly realized I didn't want to be an insurance litigator. It wasn't for me long term. So I started looking at other opportunities. I'd always had an interest in tech. I'd done a placement overseas where I'd interned a tech lobbying company in That's Washington, cool.
1: I did not know yeah. that.
0: Yeah. So that was super fun. That's super amazing. I always had an interest. I listened to podcasts about tech. I talked about tech with my friends. And so this opportunity came up at this incredible company that was a startup but had recently IPO'd and they were looking for a junior in-house person. So I took the opportunity, I interviewed there and I ended up going in-house pretty early on. So I'd only been a lawyer about a year and then took this opportunity to go in-house and had this incredible experience as an in-house lawyer pretty early on.
1: And did you get that messaging that a lot of junior lawyers get about being too early to go in-house?
0: Yes, yes, I definitely did. So, once I kind of realised that I didn't want to be in insurance, I didn't want to be an insurance litigator, I was talking to a few people in the industry, people at my firm, people in recruitment And I was basically told that it was way too early to go in-house. I needed to get more experience, get more skills, get more knowledge at the law firm before I could even think about going in-house. At the same time, it was mixed messages because I was also being told that The more time you spend at a firm, the more time you spend in insurance, the more time you spend in a certain practice area, you're going to be pigeonholed into that practice area. So it was really these mixed messages. And I think at the end of the day, I'm not the type of person that's very good at accepting that I can't do something. So I really thought, you know what? I'm not going to be happy here long term. I really want to experience life as an in-house counsel. I want my legal career to be in tech and to be in corporate law and to be in that front end area. And so I decided to make the jump.
1: Wow. And do you think, looking back, that that was the right advice or nah, no way, you're glad you listened to your gut?
0: I'm so glad I listened to my gut, Mel. Like that decision to go in-house has changed the trajectory of my career entirely. Like I am where I am now because I listened to my gut and I did what was right by me. I didn't listen to, you know, all the rhetoric, all the fear, all the um, people telling me that I didn't have enough experience, I didn't have enough knowledge to make that leap so early. And I think, you know, I was very privileged to also have a really great mentor in-house as well. So a lot can be said for the mentorship and the tutelage I got from my general counsel, Anna Tichborne at Megaport. She was. Fundamental in teaching me the best, you know, the essential skills. Yeah. As you would be well aware, that, Mel. <laughs> sure, um, sure. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I actually did interview Anna on the podcast back in January. I can't remember what an episode number it is now. I think it might have been 17 or 18, but that was for anyone listening who wants to hear the other side from a wonderful leader that both you and I have benefited from. The tutelage, as you say, of I highly recommend listening to that one for for her take on leadership and mentoring because it's really powerful stuff. And you know, yeah. I continue to get to be in Anna's orbit as you do as well. And she's yeah, truly a wonderful leader. And I love that she saw your talent and took a, a little bit of a chance on you being junior and also yeah. coming from the litigation back end space, not as common. To make the switch to come in and do the front end commercial piece, but you absolutely did. And I want to ask you about life as a junior in-house lawyer. What was it like those first couple of months?
0: Oh, yeah. It was incredibly rewarding, incredibly eye-opening. And I just learned so much. Like the learning curve was incredibly steep, but again, I think it came back to the support and the mentorship that I received. So there were high expectations, but along with those high expectations, there was a lot of support and a lot of teaching that supported me to meet those high expectations. So I think Having that experience, it really taught me a lot about business as a whole. So as a lawyer in a firm, you have a very narrow point of view, like you have the law and you have the black letter law and you have the cases and the legislation and you're advising your clients on very particular points. But when you're in-house, you have this much more general knowledge and general expertise and general skills that you have to be across in order to help the business because you just get asked so many things. You have to be across so many different areas, but you also learn about those competing interests. So it's not only just about the legal point of view anymore. You've got your commercial point of view that you have to take into account when you're advising on things. And I think that's one of the number one things that I learned very early on was Anna taught me, you can't just say no, (laughs) the business isn't going to listen to that, right? So they're asking you to do something, if it's a, oh, you know, that comes with some risk, then That's what the answer should be. You need to say, look, I don't think we should do it like this, but maybe think about doing it this way. Or if you do it like that, here are the risks that come with that and you need to be aware of those. But sometimes the business just accepts that and still does it anyway. So there's all those different interests and and different areas and things that come into it when you're advising your business as an in-house counsel.
1: And you were in an early stage tech startup So I imagine that before I joined, the risk appetite was completely different even to what it was when I started and then what it is now as the company matures and grows. But your input would have been valued, but would, I I suspect, highly contextualized with actual business outcomes and being really commercial and probably a little bit more risk averse. Did you find that?
0: Yeah, for sure. So that's what I really had to learn early on as well. Like I wasn't just talking to lawyers anymore. So I was talking to my sales team or I was talking to my marketing team or I was talking to the execs of the business And they're not going to understand the real legalese if you don't communicate in a way that they can understand, they're not really going to listen to you. So it was, yeah, that's an essential skill that I think I picked up pretty quickly and I learned pretty quickly was that I had to communicate my reasonings for an answer in a very easy to understand, succinct way. And it's that clear communication that is an essential skill really as an in-house yeah. counsel. It made it's you so quite important.
1: successful as a junior and, and new to in-house as well. And I know that the marketing team in particular really valued your advice and you worked really quite closely with them and set up some practices and some guidance and some principles that is still in place today for the way that we actually do handle communications and spam or not spam and those operating in the what became GDPR and what was looming when you were leaving. So Yeah. So I, I thank you for putting the framework into place because I had to keep rolling with it. <laughs> you really did nail that skill of communicating to the audience that you're speaking to in the way that they like to be communicated to. And that is a real skill. But yeah, you totally, totally nailed that. And I also couldn't agree more with the <laughs> the working with the different groups. Like the sales team, really different vibes to marketing team, completely different to our software engineers. The way that people think and approach problems is so diverse and that, like you said, you're not just working with other lawyers anymore and that is, remains for me the biggest win of being an in-house lawyer. That's a big part of what it is. But you looked back, you turned away. and yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just, you. Uh, Before we move on, I just sure. I want to
0: say like the other thing I learned was how important it was to build those relationships. So, yeah. you know, working so closely with sales and working so closely with marketing, you are just one aspect of that business. And it's so important to build those relationships with other teams and establish that trust so that you can become that trusted advisor that they look to. And, you know, when you are saying something that they don't like, or you're telling them that they can't do something, you're explaining why. And they listen to you because you do have that trust and you do have that relationship, but you're not just telling them no, you're telling them maybe you can't do that, but maybe think about doing this or giving them other avenues as well. So giving them other solutions.
1: How do you think you built that trust practically? What do you think you were doing that really helped develop that rapport?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think there's two aspects to it, right? Like they're just genuinely being a nice person to work with, like it's a real relationship. I made some of the best friends that I still consider today are my best friends while being at Megaport and working so closely with them. Where I am now, Markstar, so we've co-founded a legal tech company and one of our co-founders is a software engineer who I met at Megaport. So that has been an incredibly important relationship in my life. So I think there's just being a good colleague, being good to work for, having those legitimate What end up being legitimate friendships and relationships? And then there's the second point, which is taking an interest in the outcome that they're trying to achieve. So if someone's coming to you with a question or a possible problematic situation that they want to do something, you can see the risks involved in it. It's like stepping back and asking, okay, why do they want to do this? What's the outcome they want to actually achieve here? Understanding where they're coming from, understanding why they're trying to do something and understanding their role in the business enables you to help them and work with them rather than against them. So I think there's two aspects to it really to help build those relationships and build that trust.
1: Well said. I really, really like how you framed that. And I think you've just nailed it. Like, that's been my experience as well. Just being like a decent person, treating others how you'd like to be treated, and actually getting involved and in trying to understand the why, what's driving the behavior and the motivation here. And maybe I can come up with a different solution that is going to get the same outcome so yeah yeah and that's
0: the fun part of being an in-house lawyer right is learning more about different areas of the business and learning more about sales and learning more about marketing and having exposure to these areas that you wouldn't normally have
1: as just a lawyer working in a firm a hundred percent but the firm life was calling it was beckoning (laughs) you back (laughs) And you know, this happens. It's not uncommon, but often you find that private practice lawyer who comes in house might stay the path for a fair while, but you wanted to go back to private practice. So, tell us about that decision and why.
0: Yeah. So, when I try and sum up my career, there's a good quote from Sheryl Sandberg who says, you shouldn't treat your career like a ladder." Like, there's no such thing as a career ladder anymore. You should treat your career like jungle gym. And, you know, I feel like my career really adheres to that philosophy. So I have tried a lot of different things. I've tried a lot of different areas of law. At Working at Megaport in-house, I was managing the IP portfolio. And Megaport has quite a large IP portfolio. So I was put in charge of that. And I just fell in love with that. IP as an area of law.
1: So trademarks and patents and that? Yeah. Yeah. So intellectual
0: property. Yeah. Trademarks, patents. We had a lot of copyright because we were actively working with software engineers building things. Yeah. So there was a lot of IP and I just fell in love with that space. I fell in love with that area. And I really wanted to get more specialized expertise and knowledge in that area of law. So I decided that going back to a firm, going back to private practice was probably the best way to do that.
1: Fair enough. The jungle gym. So the sideways jump and then (laughs) then up and down. And I love that (laughs) analogy. It's like, it reminds me of snakes and ladders kind of over here, up and around. And yeah, it's a really good one for sure. Okay. So you've made your way back to big law and focusing in on the intellectual property space and working with some real thought leaders as well in the space. What was that like, that change? The culture shock, I imagine, knowing Megaport and where you were and, and how you shifted back into private practice.
0: Yeah. So a bit of a mixed bag. It's like any experience, right? You have the upsides and then you have the downsides. And the upsides for me that I, I got that specialist knowledge. I got that specialist expertise. I got to work on matters that were really interesting, specializing in intellectual property that I probably otherwise wouldn't have. But it also came at a cost And to me, talk about like the culture of big law, where I was, it was quite a toxic culture. I was working for a person who has a bit of a reputation as being a difficult personality to work for, not a great manager. The culture itself seems to be in a lot of big law firms in that top tier space is prioritizing work above all else. And and I really experienced that. I experienced that pressure of prioritizing work above my health, above my family, above my friends, above my hobbies, above everything else in my life. And it takes a toll. It definitely takes a toll. And so I came out of my experience in big law, a very, very good lawyer with very, very good skills and very good expertise and very good knowledge. But I was just incredibly burnt out after being in there for a number of years. And it got to the point where I decided that it wasn't the right place for me and that cost was
1: no longer worth paying. Did you know that when you were going in no. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bit blindsided, perhaps.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, I think it's very well known that in some of these firms, you work incredibly hard and it's incredibly demanding. But I just think I was a bit naive and I didn't really appreciate just how toxic the environment was going to be for me. So, you for, know, for, if a lot of had...
1: people, for most people, really. Yes. Yes. At least the ones and that I know.
0: Yes. Exactly. And I think that's the main thing that really upsets me is my experience isn't unique at all. It isn't the exception. There are a lot of people who burn out in private practice. There are a lot of toxic workplace environments in private practice. And there are a lot of people who leave the law altogether because they've had this incredibly damaging, incredibly bad experience. And that's just really upsetting to me. I still have friends in that environment and one of them has just recently left and I was talking to her about her own experience and it was like I was having a conversation with myself two, three years ago. Like she was saying she didn't feel confident anymore. She didn't feel like herself anymore. She would wake up in the morning and just have this weight on her chest and this dread going to work. And I think having that conversation was incredibly anxiety. Hey, anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah. It was like having conversation with myself two years before, and it was exactly the same feeling. And. After that conversation, I really reflected and I realized that when I left, I was incredibly burnt out. I was incredibly damaged from that experience. I think it took me a whole year to recover, to regain yes. my confidence, to regain my bubbly, humorous self. What do you
1: think creates that Pressure cooker allows that toxicity to fester so commonly in these environments. And it is common, and I don't think we talk about it enough, but it's like this dirty little secret in our industry that we all seem to know about <laughs> although maybe not the some of the grads don't still get that messaging and they march forward with such wide eyes and such hope and excitement and then they systematically get chewed up and spit out the other side i've seen it for 10 years now like what do you think creates that experience
0: i think it's a couple of things i think it's no coincidence that This isn't a problem that one firm is experiencing. This is a systematic problem across the industry, like you say. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the business model of law firms, like the billable hour. A lawyer is valued based on how much they bill.
1: Time at the desk.
0: Time at the desk, that face time. They're valued on inputs, not on outputs. And so your whole value as a lawyer comes down to how much you bill. That's not good. It doesn't create a good environment in which people can thrive. It doesn't encourage senior lawyers to be teaching junior lawyers. It doesn't encourage spending time investing into others. It doesn't encourage Creativity, it doesn't encourage innovation because all the time that you're spending on doing those other things is time that you're not spending billing. And at the end of the day, if what you're valued is on is time that you spend billing, you're naturally going to let those other things fall to the sideline. So it's the business model of law firms, but it's also this general, I guess it's a vibe or an unspoken rule that when you're in that environment that's just kind of how it is if you can't hack it then you're, you're weak. the problem
1: yes yes you're the problem that's so, called gaslighting babe yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gas, yeah gaslighting 101 and
0: so it's like this self-perpetuating cycle where you feel like you are weak or you feel like you're not worth it or you feel like you can't hack it so you just work harder and you sacrifice that time with your family or you sacrifice that time with your friends or you're going for a run or picking up a hobby or doing the hobby you had before you went to that firm. It's self-perpetuating and I think for me that was definitely the case. I was definitely there to prove myself after a few years of doing that, I just realized that I can have this, but I just don't want to anymore. This isn't where my priorities are.
1: You know what? It's a profitable business model. So where's the impetus to change? That's what I keep thinking. How does this change for the next gen? And as we move into a phase of our career where we can become leaders and senior people, like how do you aggravate for that change when it's actually really profitable like and it's capitalism at the end of the day and I yeah I struggle I struggle with that and I also really I struggle with the role that in-house has as well to play because we can't wipe our hands of this as in-house lawyers if we are the clients pushing for tight deadlines or being disorganized or not managing projects correctly and pushing that onto the external advisors who then have to turn things around, you know, at ridiculous timeframes. And they do, and they're being paid handsomely to do so. But it's a whole ecosystem. It's a whole industry. It isn't just one piece of the Mechanics, the creating this culture and this whole system. But yeah, I mean, it's bigger than this conversation, but I so appreciate your honesty in going there and really being quite open around your experience because I think that the awareness is a big part of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it's going to be hard for firms to change. Their entire business model is based on the billable hour, our industry is based on the billable hour. But you talk about it from the client side of things and We've been talking a lot about how the billable hour isn't good for the workplace employees, but it's also not good for the clients. Like at the end of the day, it incentivizes the wrong behavior. It's a system that rewards inefficiencies. It's that productivity paradox. Like the more inefficient you are as a lawyer, the more you are paid. So what is the incentive to do things differently? What's the incentive to Implement tech or implement processes that make things more efficient and quicker and faster and better when you are going to be cutting out billable time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like directly against the interests of your business model. So that's
1: fascinating.
0: Yeah, but I think there is this awareness that's emerging around just how bad it is and we are seeing an uptick in client demand for something different, for something better. And so there is opportunity to ask your lawyers for alternative fee arrangements. You talk about like if something needs to be done urgently, then yeah, of course that's going to happen. That always happens. Like the amount of times that your marketing person or your salesperson or your software engineer comes to you and says, Hey, there's this thing. And then you've got to brief that out to your external counsel and you've got those tight turnarounds and you've got those tight deadlines. We can look at doing other things in the industry. We can look at alternative fee arrangements. If something needs to be done on a tight timeline, then the price could go up or there are other ways to bill.
1: Price surge, not like just, Uber.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, like the Uber model. You have a price surge. If you want something done this weekend, there's a price surge. That's what a half time! So there are other ways of doing things, and I think more and more clients are demanding alternative fee arrangements. And that's doing things like price surging. It's doing things like fixed fees. It's doing things like like what we do at Markstar, which is the subscription based model. That
1: is a brilliant segue, Kate. <laughs> Because I want to shift to where you are now and what you're doing now, which is very, very cool. And I am a huge fan of you and what you're doing. But I want to know where this idea for Markster came from and what it is.
0: When I was working practice and when I was working in a firm, I was doing a lot of IP work and doing a lot of trademark work. And I actually met my partner, so... My business partner, one of our co-founders at Markstar, Chris, but also who became my
1: life partner. Life partner, <laughs> reno partner, so, house partner, <laughs> yeah, dog
0: parent partner. Dog parent, co-parent.
1: <laughs> I love it. You guys are all in. <laughs> uh, yes,
0: we're all in. <laughs>
1: And so he
0: had been the senior associate who was in charge of the trademark portfolio for the Brisbane team that we were working in. As part of that, we were managing these huge international portfolios for really like huge international clients. And I really got to see how administrative, heavy, process-driven and manual the management of large trademark portfolios was. Firms use paralegals and admin staff to do a lot of the admin work that comes with managing a large portfolio, and they charge a lot of money for it. There's a real lack of tech and a real lack of automation around this area, and we just thought there had to be a better way. Once I had recovered a bit <laughs> from my experience, I was really in a headspace where I was thinking creatively about what I wanted to do. And having numerous conversations with Chris about the management of IP, the implementation of tech in this area, we realized that this is an area that is ripe for automation and ripe for the implementation of tech. So we approached Adam, our software engineer, and we have built and designed a platform for in-house counsel that helps
1: them better manage
0: their trademark portfolio.
1: You just decided to fix the problem yourself by founding a legal tech company. I mean, why not? (laughs) That's just... That is so brave. Oh, my gosh. And shout out to Adam because he was probably one of two or three people who basically created Megaport as well. So the um, guy yes. knows what he's doing. He's brilliant. He's Truly. absolutely brilliant. And now you've got him on Legal Tech, so that's kind of cool. But Yeah. <laughs> so he loves
0: yeah. it. So it's been this whole journey where he's teaching us about tech and we're teaching him about legal stuff and and IP. (laughs) And he knows a lot. He knows a lot now. So
1: I think he loves
0: it. He just loves learning and creating. So
1: So Markster, a legal tech solution, a platform that manages trademark portfolios. Am I hitting that right? Yes.
0: Yes. So Markster provides dynamic trademark services for modern in-house legal teams.
1: So we
0: help our clients de-risk and optimize their portfolios cut costs, implement faster, better processes, automate a lot of the admin work that comes with managing a large portfolio and yeah, just better, more easily manage their trademark portfolio. For a so fixed way,
1: fee. Yeah. It's yeah. a subscription it's model. Just a, so exactly. I love yeah. it. We really
0: thought about how we wanted to do this and we really wanted to make the user experience the focus of everything we did so the way we designed the platform we consulted with in-house lawyers we had been in-house lawyers managing those portfolios ourselves but also on you know the external legal side so we were trying to design something that solved a lot of the pain points that in-house counsel have with managing therapy portfolios while making the user experience the focus of everything we did. And so that comes down to how we designed our business model as well. It's a subscription model, which is a bit weird when you think about lawyers on subscription, but I truly think that it is one of the ways that we're going to see lawyers pricing in the future. It's value-based, so it's output, not input. It's better for the client, allows them to remove the admin of managing external legal spend and offers them this inclusive fixed predictable cost
1: for their trademark portfolio i love it well i mean full transparency i am a client of markster and megaport jumped all in on this when you came in and you pitched to anna and myself and we went "Ah, uh, yes please This sounds fantastic. For us, it was around the transparency piece. So I just log on like I do to my Netflix account and there are all my trademarks. I mean, you know, probably quicker than I do, but it's like 200 something trademarks around the world. And they're all there beautifully presented on a dashboard with all the correspondence. It's easy to chat back and forth with you and, and or Chris. And I can see very quickly what the status of the registration or the application is, and that for me was a missing piece in our, our previous service. So we moved our entire portfolio from traditional law firm to Markster because we could see what exactly what you were trying to achieve. And we've been working with you now for probably close to a year and, and it has been absolutely fantastic because I also get the predictability when it comes to budget time. I know exactly how many trademarks and the cost per each and we can also budget in for what new trademarks might be coming and, and I'm going to have a decent understanding of the cost for the trademarks for the year. And that's not always the case if it's I'm paying by the hour. So, yeah, I love what you guys are doing. I think that it's also pretty cool, your story and the courage that you had to take a leap faith and to create your own legal tech startup. Like I just, yeah, I think it's awesome. So, you know, I'm a massive fan, but I just want to shout that out because it takes a lot. Where did you get that jump, that leap of faith, courage from to leave full-time work and start up?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It came back to the fact that we really believed in what we were doing. I was seeing the inefficiencies, the admin heavy processes, the, the increased costs, the increased workloads for already busy in-house teams. The fact that in-house teams couldn't see their own information, couldn't see their own portfolios. They didn't have that transparency. They didn't have that oversight, not only to what trademarks they actually have registered, but the cost. So I think that. We really saw a problem and we really saw a potential solution and we really believe in what we are doing, which is, is trying to do things in a better way. So I think that that definitely takes a bit of the risk out of it.
1: You were kind of scratching your own itch in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. You had, yeah. had that experience. You were looking for something that was a different and it didn't exist in the market. So you thought, well, I'm going to go make it. <laughs> Yeah, I love exactly. it. And you've got the passion, exactly. and, and your team has the passion. And I think I'm really excited to see where it goes. But you're out there now in the market, you're meeting with general counsel around the world, and in particular in Australia and New Zealand, and teaching and talking and having those conversations about legal tech adoption more broadly, I suspect. I want to ask you what feedback you're getting from legal teams. Are they interested in legal tech? Is it all a bit too hard or too expensive? Like, what's the What's the trend more broadly, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think since COVID, we've really seen a dramatic acceleration of the implementation and use of technology. Businesses around the world have had to adapt and this has led to a dramatic increase in digital transformation. I was listening to someone from Microsoft, I think the other day, and they were saying In a few months since COVID happened, they'd seen more digital transformation projects implemented in business than in the few years prior to COVID. And that translates to law firms and the legal industry and in-house legal teams. So I think legal tech is just an emerging industry. We're only going to be seeing more of it. We're going to see more demand, more talk. It's going to become much more common than it ever was. But I also think that there's this pressure on in-house legal teams They're being asked to do so much more with so much less. They are operating in this incredibly complex environment where they're dealing with changing landscapes, changing regulation, changing laws every day. And they, so there's this increased appetite to investigate better ways of working and things that they can implement to increase processes, increase efficiencies. So, yeah, I think we're on the cliff of what is a very, very exciting, rapidly
1: expanding industry. I agree. I really do. It feels like the start of something, like a massive wave. And I mean, that'll feel different to different teams and also the culture of the company within which you operate. I feel like we're probably always like at the early adopter phase. But yeah. But I don't know, it also feels like that's just the most obvious solution for us to be adopting different pieces of legal tech so i'm always loving to learn and have demos and I get an understanding of how we can do things more efficiently so i love it yeah
0: and you know it doesn't even come down to undertaking a huge digital transformation project but just looking at the way things are done now and asking the question like can this be done better. And I think more and more, that's the that's the trend that I'm seeing is clients are asking, can we do this better? And can we do this in another way? And, you know, that's not just to do with tech, but it might be just even simple processes that can be automated or done in a more streamlined way, or even using alternative fee arrangements. So just looking at what they're doing now and seeing what could
1: be done differently. I love it. What you just said reminded me of the saying, how do you eat an elephant? Just one bite at a time. So, yeah. yeah, picking off some of the low-hanging fruit, some of those quick wins for legal tech or innovation that doesn't even involve tech. It's just a, a way of doing things differently. Getting some of those mm-hmm. wins on the board and building your confidence in implementing change within the team and the business. I think that's a mindset that I would encourage all in-house lawyers to really start to cultivate for sure
0: yeah yeah and just the willingness to try something new and to implement something new yeah exactly it's digital transformation is it's a journey it's a really long journey so looking at your processes now and thinking about what you can start now to start that journey will always put you in good stead and always put your business in good stead to prepare for the future
1: Kate, we are coming to the top of the hour and you've been so generous with me on a Sunday. We could speak for many hours more, but I have one last question for you. Speaking of the future, what's next for Markstar? What are you excited about?
0: That's a great question. I think there's just so much opportunity in this space and I'm really excited to see what the future brings in this area, in the area of innovation and legal tech and automation and AI. I just love doing what I'm doing every single day. I love talking to clients. I love talking to clients about everything that we've been talking about, about ways they can be managing their IP portfolio to make it more easier for them to cut costs, to increase efficiencies, to do things in a more streamlined, faster, more efficient way. I'm excited and I love talking to clients about their IP portfolios themselves, like the strategy that they can implement when it comes to IP, there's so much opportunity there. Your IP portfolio should be this real living, breathing reflection of your business. Your IP, it's a valuable business asset. And, you know, a lot of the times businesses don't treat it like that. It kind of just sits there. And I think that's often because businesses and in-house counsel can't easily access their own IP portfolios and they don't have that transparency and they don't have that oversight so you're changing uh, that (laughs) yeah yeah hopefully hopefully so so I think it's incredibly exciting time
1: I can hear it in your voice you are just so passionate about this space you are just bouncing off the walls with excitement and (laughs) I am so proud of you Kate like as a friend to see you come from a pretty dark place, chewed up, spat out, big law machine. You found your thing, and it lights you up, and it just it lights me up to see that. So I just, Aww. oh, I'm so proud of you. You're amazing, <laughs> and I I love what you're doing. I think it's awesome, and I think you should reflect on that and be really proud of yourself. And thank you Aww. for your time today. I know it's a Sunday, but we had to make oh, it yeah. happen,
0: girl. So. <laughs> yeah thank no, it's you an absolute pleasure and thank you for everything that you do as well like the opportunity to sit down and reflect on these things i think is incredibly important and it might make someone who's going through the same thing not feel so alone, so when alone. They realize that
1: yeah, yeah that- it's common
0: Or, on the other hand, like if someone is also thinking about stepping into this space or has an idea or wants to try something new, like they should be like not feel like it's a risk that they're taking. They should be inspired. They should want to try something new and be encouraged to try something new. So, I think what you're doing is incredible, sharing people's journeys and and helping people get exposure to different aspects of what a legal career could be is incredibly important. So thank you.
1: My pleasure, lovely. If anyone would like to reach out, I know that you would be very happy to connect with people and share more of your story. But if they would like to reach out, where's the best place to find you?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd love that. I love talking to people. If anyone wants to contact me, definitely feel free. We'll have a virtual coffee or coffee in person. So you can contact me on LinkedIn, Kate McAllister, or through our website, which is www.markstar.com.au. My email is kate at So feel free to reach out.
1: Perfect. I will put all of those links in the show notes. So thank you again you're the best. Good luck with the rest of the year and into 2022. And I can't wait to see what it brings for Markster. Thank you, Kate.
0: Thank you, Mel. Have a great day.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this podcast. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you're listening from. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn, Instagram, or even Clubhouse. Check out the show notes for all of these links.